Welcome to the Practical Futurist podcast, a bi-weekly show all about the near-term future with practical advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and practical futurist, Andrew Grill. Welcome to episode one of the Practical Futurist podcast. In this episode, my guest is the impactologist, Martin Brooks. Welcome, Martin. Hello. Uh, Your Twitter bio says you're an enabler of people's potential. Your feedback helps people to create greater impact in presentations. Is that a good summary of what you actually do? Absolutely. In different formats, it's really about helping people to communicate to the fullest of their potential, utilizing all the channels of communication, their messaging, their body language, their voice, how they sequence stuff, handling performance nerves and high pressure situations and boosting confidence. So put all of those elements together to enable people to communicate with maximum impact. And it's actually a fascinating story about how we met. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I look back, I tweeted a link to my showreel back in late 2016, I think it was. Wow. And you responded that it was a great way to show impact. What happened next? Well, I thought it was really interesting in that it was the first time I'd ever seen somebody use video. And some speakers, not hugely confident about what they do, wouldn't put unadulterated tip, uh, clips of themselves out there. So it was something that was, you know, being the technological enabler that you are, you'd probably don't somebody who'd been doing that first. And I thought that was really interesting that you put that out there and it created an impact. For me, it was something different and I responded to it. And then we we started conversing. You're interested in what I did. Yeah, we've been working together on my talks ever since and you've become the voice in my head on stage. So uh, that's either a good or a bad thing. So, uh, So who would hire an impactologist? One of the key things that I find when I'm working with people motivates people as pain or gain you know any psychologist will tell you that pain is a greater motivator than gain certainly in competitive situations where people have had that horrible feedback in a pitch or a presentation scenario particularly if there's a, a prize like a new product launch or a, a venture cap a, a, a company looking for venture capital intervention and get that feedback great pitch loved your offering really interesting you got down to the last two but we went with the other company supplier we invested it elsewhere and that's that moment of where people realizing that they were close they were within sniffing distance of of achieving first place whatever that is using a sporting metaphor but unlike sport in business, there's no, no prize for coming second. So it's that pain of people realizing there was something that they could have done differently, better, or the other person did just something more, more often, a higher level of technique. And those got competitive advantage then often will come down to people's communication skills, how well they put across their information. And interestingly, a very large blue chip company, I spoke to their chief storytelling officer a while ago and he said that he had senior people within the organization come to him constantly saying they didn't understand the buyer's behavior because they said they bought a a offering that is substandard and was more expensive and that their salespeople or their account managers articulated that in great detail 
but they still went with the other person. They paid more for an inferior product. And there, the differentiator, and it wasn't just a differentiator in terms of equality of product or offering, actually the communication skills of the people actually overrode what would have been on the pure technical analysis that the person's communication skills overrode an inferior product. So it's not just like level playing field, but you can actually lose out with a superior offering to somebody who's got superior communication skills. So anywhere where people have experienced that pain, they go, I do not want that to be the reason that I don't fail, that I don't succeed, that I don't make the impact that I want. And that's often a motivator to people to come to me and go, what could I do differently, better, more? So when you've got them in front of you and you've reviewed their performance, what are the sort of levers that you can pull to maximize their impact? Because obviously, like an athlete, there'll be a certain point where they just can't get any better. Or maybe they can. Is it you can have a step in cha- step change with some people? Uh, and then I think with people like me that have been doing this for a while, I'm seeing st- not step changes anymore, no disrespect, but I'm seeing really tiny things that can have a huge impact, even though they seem quite small. What, what are the levers? Well, the, the levers vary person to person, but there's certainly some ones that are very, very consistent. With that, with my offering, I've got a sales background. So I understand the importance of having a good message and having that sequenced in the appropriate way. What's the problem? How do you solve it? How do you solve it better than other people? What would be the inhibitors, the person making the decision, and how can you motivate people through the the downside of the current situation or the upside of what you're suggesting. So structurally, I understand all of that. And a lot of people who are who are presentation or pitch coaches very often come from an acting or drama background. And I understand that, the ability to orate and be, speak clearly and use tone and pitch, all of that stuff, really, really important. But fundamentally, if your message is flawed, if it's structurally unsound, you can make it as pretty as you like, but it's just not going to work. So the starting point for me is very often the messaging, making sure that what people are going to say, once I know who they're pitching to, who that audience is, where they are currently, where the speaker wants to get them to, and then the steps that are that are going to be needed in between. So uh, my starting point is often like a satinav. I say a satinav needs two points of reference, where you are and where you want to get to. And then only when your satinav knows what those two points are can I start to plot the in-between piece. So my starting point is often that. So the answer to your question, the lever, the first lever is very often how clear is the message. Before we start doing any of the stuff that might seem more uh, uh, obvious at this point in time, like body language or voice or words, actually you got to start with the message. Otherwise, you use the phrase that I, I say, you're putting, you're putting lipstick on a pig. It's, it looks prettier, but it's still a pig. No, no disrespect to any pig lovers out there. So uh, the messaging is the, is, the, is the starting point, and then you can look at delivery. So what I call design and the delivery phase. So the design of the message and then the delivery. And then the levers are things like body language, it's voice, it's the language that you actually choose, then it's handling performance, anxiety or nerves and boosting confidence. 
all those core elements. And then you get into the advanced rhetorical techniques, things like that the top, 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 top speakers in the world do, like triples or dramatic contrasts or utilizing uh, statistics, the killer stats uh, appropriately. So there's a whole myriad of things. And now what I look at is there's a million things I could say to somebody, but I look at that starting point. Who's your audience? Where do you want to get to? And then it's a matter of whatever time is available, picking the most important things that I believe will help move that person forward and more successful communicator by making a gooder impact. So I want to change tack a bit. You told me the other day that our psychology and neurology are geared to face-to-face -face communications. And now we're in a world where everything's moving online. We've got people buried in their phones talking to each other in the next room. Maybe you can talk a bit about that and how we have to adapt as communicators to these different channels. Yeah, and it's, it's a really interesting point, and one I've reflected on a lot over the years, particularly as new technologies become available. And even, you know, going back 10, 15 years, whatever it was, where email started to become, I remember going on an email etiquette course, and it was like one of those things where here's a toy, go play with it, but nobody gave you the rules. Yeah. And this course just blew me away, even though I've been using email for a couple of years, it was like just really common sense stuff about using it. So if you reply to a person, just thinking, is the title still relevant? Because that bounces back and forth a couple of times. Very often the message now bears zero resemblance to the original title. And six months later, when you're trying to find that email, you can't find it because it's under the wrong title. So simple things like that. And the analogy I think we discussed was like, now, here we are sat in the UK. If you drive a car, you drive on the left. I've driven on the left all my life. I'm pretty good at driving on the left. So that's the environment within which I've built my skill set. But if I go to the continent or America and I start driving a car, it's a car, it's got four wheels, it's the same thing, but now the environment is different. So when the environment changes, you have to change your behavior to be appropriate to that environment. You can't just drive on the left because that's what you're used to in America. You die pretty quickly. Technology is the same. I think our, you know, if you look at our human beings evolution, we've We've, we've evolved to do face-to-face -face communication. Technology and everything else is very, very new in our, our species development. It's a different environment. So communicating over the phone is different to communicating face-to-face. -face. Communicating on a teleconference is very different. Uh, communicating via SMS is very different to face-to-face -face communication. Primarily, an email, similarly, it doesn't have that interactivity. When you start a sentence with somebody face-to-face, you can look at their facial expressions. You can see how they're starting to respond. In fact, when I was studying uh, psychology, and one of the things that they were being taught was what's called sensory acuity. As you start speaking to somebody, noticing how your message is landing, and do you need to change tack, or what's somebody's emotional response to that? And I remember the, the lecturer saying, when you get really good at this, you'll be able to change the second half of a sentence depending upon how well the person has, uh, how the person has responded to the first half. And I remember thinking, that's crazy. But the more you start doing it and you build it up, you can. None of that is it possible on a teleconference or an SMS. It's just one way, and then it lands how it lands, and you go with the response that you get. It's a, it's a huge thing. I, I think I do it myself, that you can become almost a chameleon, but you need that visual encourage. You need the audience looking at their phone or staring at you or nodding or whatever it is to know whether you can is speed up working? or slow down. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right, on a, on a communications channel where you can't see the other person or the there's an impairment to see them because it's on a video conference and you can't see their mm. whole body language as well. I think it's a really important point. So how do you use the different communications channels more effectively? Are there tips that you can give us? Yeah, absolutely. One thing actually I saw recently was a piece of research where 
well, technology enabling this, looking at the richness of somebody's voice. And they'd done some experiments where they'd got somebody to have a conversation with somebody. And they measured the variance in pitch and speed and warmth and tone and emotion in the voice, which now you can start to measure. And, you know, they did a, a test group of that. Then they did a second test group where people were having a very, very similar conversation. But now they just had a picture of the person that they were talking really? to. Yeah. And they could measure very, very specifically changes in the voice in terms of emotion and pitch and tone because it seemed more, quote unquote, real. Therefore, there's an interesting dynamic about how our vocal tonalities and the quality of our communication drop because we're not tuned to that. There's nobody there. We feels like we're talking to ourselves psychologically. Even a conference I attended yesterday, a, per, a speaker got up and said, you, this, will, this will tickle you. They had their speech printed out, long form. And, and there was parts in time where they would look down and they would read their their speech. They're called them the lectin grabbers. They yeah. hold on for dear life. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what was fascinating was I could hear the difference when they were looking down and reading versus when they came up and they were actually talking around a piece. And they could see people react. They can see people reacting, what's landing, what's not landing. They would pause in the right places, etc. And all of those little subtleties would come into play when they were doing the quote-unquote face-to-face piece. When, as soon as they looked down and were reading, they lost that interactivity. The vocal tonalities dropped. They weren't able to pick up on what the audience were or were not responding to, were to pause, were to allow the laugh to giggle out more effectively. All those little subtleties. But coming back to the, the point about the difference in, in first and second, I remember seeing Chris Hoy, the Olympic gold medalists talk about this idea of marginal gains. Don't go after the big things, go after all the little things. And they have that cumulative effect. And in a competitive environment, it could be some of those small things like the, the drop of tonality of the voice. Or just, and often when you ask people, you know, why did you pick those personalities? I felt more convinced. It was an emotion that they talk about. And it's that vocal identification of the relationship and the enthusiasm and the energy that people connect with as much as the the offering is being talked about but often it's the it's the style of delivery of the person that makes that final decision now given this is the practical futurist podcast i've got to drop a practical tip in there something i do and something you've helped me with i record my speeches and so if i had recorded my talk and i'd been that person grabbing a lectern I would have seen for myself the change in attitude and then I could give it to someone like you and you could review it and go, oh, here's an easy thing. Uh, don't look down at the speech. So how important is it if people want to improve that they, and I had to do this, it took me two years to, to stop cringing when I watched myself present, <laughs> but I think when you actually see it played back and then have someone like you that's essentially a coach saying this is what you did differently, how important is that I think for people to understand their style and delivery? I think it's fascinating. I've had a couple of conversations. I've been to a couple of conferences and events in the last couple of days. And, and people saying to me, you know, you're, we are our own worst evaluators because we over obsess on the small mistakes that we are, are making that are obvious to us. But you can't recognize what you don't understand. You, you, so, for example, I worked with a senior executive at a, a very large accounting firm recently, and he sent me a, a clip that he had. I reviewed it. And he had said the word um 11 times in the first sentence. So the, my first piece of feedback was, well, you said um 11 times in your first sentence, in the first, not the first sentence, sorry, the first minute of his talk. And his first reaction was, did I? 
So there was no conscious awareness of that, no, no, no idea. And even earlier this week, I was coaching a CEO who's launching a whole new product, in fact, today, to a bunch of venture capitalists. And I talked about using gesturing, what I call inline gestures or illustrators. And she had no idea that she did it. Uh, but she did it sporadically. So I find I, I've even called, I've used the phrase uh, accidental brilliance, where people will do things without the awareness of what they're doing. Just somehow they've osmosized it up from somebody yeah. and they do that. So I spend as people are sometimes surprised. I spend as much time pointing out people's good habits that they don't know they have as the bad habits that they don't know they have. And then we work from there to increase what they can do differently. And again, the practical tip, it's simple to do. If you have an iPhone or an Android phone, go and buy a 10-pound tripod and a clamp, put it at the back of the room, hit record before you go on stage. It's not something that's ready for broadcast yet, but it's something that you can look at yourself and give to someone like you. I've gone the next step. I bought some impressional gear. I even have two cameras now, so I can cut together. But that's kind of the one end of the spectrum. But I think it, the first thing is realising that if you're going to improve, you have to assess your performance. Yeah. I've, I can't tell you the number of people who've come to me and said, I, I just can't bring myself to watch myself. It's just too, too cringeworthy. And, you know, I don't like looking at myself either because I'm like, <laughs> I spot every yeah. tiny little thing that yeah. I think there is an opportunity to go better. But once you get over that, and once you're committed to, you know, I think you used the phrase going from good to great, you know, the, once there's that decision, yeah. I want to get better and I'll take the pain with that. And the easy thing, or the great thing I find is that in a very short period of time, I will often film people before and after. What's your first yes, version? What's yes. the second version? And when you can clearly show back to people, you know, the subtle changes and the difference that they make. And then, as you mentioned, the cumulative effect of all of those small things all built into a greater and greater and greater impact giving you more and more and more competitive advantage. I remember myself, I showed you one of my clips recently where I asked the audience something uh, no, they asked me something from stage. And when I answered, I stepped backwards. Yeah. I had no idea that I'd done that. <laughs> yeah. And so because you're now the voice in my head, when an audience member asks me a question, I walk forward. And I think that probably has more impact. But I only know it because I watched it and, and you then picked it up. Even yeah. watching my clip back, I would never have seen it. It's those little things that can, can be so important. That's known as the postural retreat, where you literally have uh, very little faith in what you've just said. So right. you distance yourself from that from mystery. It. You're running yeah. away from yeah. it. There's the famous uh, Richard Nixon uh, click, uh, clip where he says, I, I'm not a crook, whilst nodding his head, yes. <laughs> and I earned every cent of that money whilst nodding his head from side to side in the no fashion and then he takes a, a step back and folds his arms for so he distances himself from his lies and he folds his arms which is a body psychological way of protecting the vulnerable organs at the front and anybody can google that just google richard nixon i'm not a crook and watch him nod his head yes when he says i'm not a crook watch him nod his head side to side when he said i earned every cent of that money and then steps back what we call the postural retreat moving away and people don't understand that. I've met very few people when I explain it, it's go, oh yes, I know that. But people respond to it. Yeah. Something just seems off. Yeah. They just, people feel a lack of confidence when that's done. So you don't have to be consciously aware of what something is for have a negative impact. We can't smell carbon monoxide, but it'll kill us anyway. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. things like that can kill your pitch. So that's where I add real value in where I can spot things that may well be reducing your impact. And my rule is always, I will, not tell, I will never share something with you 
that it's reducing your impact unless I give you a replacement behavior, right. something to do right. differently that will boost your impact. So that's always my golden rule. Now getting practical again, I'm a bit of an airline geek because I travel so much. So I like knowing how planes communicate with each other. And if ever you listen to air traffic control or go to YouTube, you'll find that the air traffic controller will say, for example, speed word 16, uh, descend to 7,000. And the pilot will respond back with exactly what was said, yeah. Speedberg 16, descend 7,000, which then both sides know that they've been heard and they've been understood. And that's a really formal way of communication. That yes. saves lives. Yes, literally. Can yeah. we learn from that really formal structured communication back into the workplace? You talked a bit about rounds the other day. Yes. Yeah. There's So there's the wonderful phrase that silence does not equal agreement, understanding, or motivation to act. Says Andrew nodding his head. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So you can, you can communicate something on a teleconference, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people. I've remember many years ago when I worked for a large corporate being on a teleconference that had a number of thousand people on it. Now, you can't interact with that number of people effectively. It's just not possible. However, depending upon the complexity of the message, how do you know that it's been understood? And certainly your starting point is just because it made sense to you in your head as you said it, and you know the context, and you know where people are and where you want them to be and what they want to do differently, and you're motivated, None of that necessarily transfers with your words. People will misinterpret things. How many times have... They're on you, mute and they're talking to other people talking, about what they're well, saying they're or was, typing to each other. Yeah, absolutely. There was some research in Wall Street Journal the other day. I can't remember the exact figures, but something like 65% of people admitted to doing other work whilst on a teleconference. And, you know, human beings, we know we can't multitask. That's why texting whilst driving is illegal. It's very dangerous. You can't do those two things at the same time. And of course, unfortunately, the accident statistics support that. So the ability to be, we think we can multitask. We can do different things. We can, we know we can. We know we can. <laughs> what we can't do is do two tasks. Even if we can think we can, we can't do two tasks effectively as we can do one. It's just you can't divide your brain power and have that div the division parts the same size. So when talking about, come back to your question about rounds, then that's a technique that I learned on teleconference. You can say something that's perfectly clear to, to you, but is it clear to your, to your audience? So then you can have a, like a spreadsheet in front of you of the attendees and you can start at the top. Okay, so I'm going to do a round now. I'm going to come out and I'm going to double check that all that will make sense to somebody, everybody. And when I say your name, come off mute and just confirm that that all makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can go around. So Tom, does that make sense? Yes. Sheila, does that make sense? Yes. And you can go around. You can confirm understanding and or welcome questions, depending on the number of people. But what's even more effective is that before you start that, you say, I'm going to be asking you questions after this. So get ready. So get, effectively get ready. And that's one way of increasing people's engagement with what you're saying, knowing there's going to be it's a, going to be a, a question, question at, at, yeah. at, at yeah. some point. And then, there, so that, well, that was the rounds technique. So even though it can't be as interactive as face-to-face, -face, you're looking to bring in some of those interactivity pieces and remembering that old idea that silence does not equal agreement, understanding, or motivation to act. Otherwise, the strongest voices will literally overpower the conversation. If mm. you're on the internet at the moment, Google conference call in real life, oh, yes. where they kind of replay <laughs> what actually happens and, and the call drops out and people talk to each other and you hear the coffee machine in the background. But I think that's a great technique. It's, again, very practical tip. It sounds 
so so simple that it may not even work, but it will work. And I think people on the conference call won't know that you're formally doing this. They'll just go, that was a great conference call. Not sure why, yeah. but Mark really had command of it and we've got some action points. Let's get on with it. Yeah. And there's so it's about this idea of environment. When you move environment, mm. are there new tools and techniques that you need, you need to utilize? Uh, we talked the other day about the named question technique, for, for example. And that's another way of making sure that engagement is there. Now, the way we would normally ask a question is, what do you think of that, Andrew? Now, imagine you're on a teleconference, you are doing your email, you're only half listening, and then I ask you a question that's not just about comprehension, but how would you apply this tool, this technique, or this strategy to your area? Say, for example, it's an international call. Now, there's however many other people on that call become very aware that you weren't listening because you go, um, yes, well... Um, uh, I'm just coming off mute. Yeah, <laughs> let me just uh, hit send. <laughs> but so that would not work for the relationship relationship with that person, you're now going to make them feel horrible, uh, potentially humiliate them in front of the entire group of people. So that's, uh, yes, they will be engaged and you'll frighten the hell out of everybody else on the call, but it's not particularly positive. So a better way of doing it is what I call the named question technique. So you start the question exactly. So you reverse the order. So you go, Andrew, let me ask you about how exactly My and you, head pops the, up. The, the head Here comes pops the question. Yeah. yeah, because there there is no more engaging sign to anybody than the sound of their own name. So if you say the person's name, pause slightly, then ask the question, you're A, you're going to get a much better response and the person won't feel quite as bad as then having almost no time before they've got to respond. And the other side effect is that anybody else who wasn't listening will go, whew, thank goodness that wasn't me, but I better start listening more intently because it might be me the next time. Dale Carnegie, in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, famously said, I think it was number six, uh, the sweetest sound in the world is the sound of your own name. Isn't that right, Martin? Yeah, Martin, absolutely. I think it's really a Martin. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to touch on something I know that we're both passionate about, and that's the power of persuasion. I mean, we do what we do because we want to persuade other people to change their mind, change their software, cha change their thinking. I started reading an excellent book called Talk Like Ted. Yes. It's by an author called Carmine Gallo, mm. and it's titled Five Stars from Good to Great. I couldn't put it down. The, the opening chapter really affirms my thinking about the value and the skill of public speaking. And Gallo provides a couple of examples. He says that persuaders are irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. He argues in the book that the days of being average in business are over. If a computer can recognize average, it can replicate average. Average simply isn't good enough to stand out in the digital age. Another beautiful quote. If you can persuade, inspire, and ignite the imagination of others, you'll be unstoppable, irresistible, and irreplaceable. And with all the talk at the moment about AI and am I going to lose my job, will I be replaced by that? He has a point that there is a transferable skill that all humans can learn and we can mm. conquer, and that is the power of persuasion. One more quote, then I'll, I'll get your, your thoughts on this. He goes on to say that emotional connection is indeed the winning ticket in a world where technologies such as automation, big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning are eliminating millions of jobs and disrupting entire industries, businesses, and careers. His key point is that in every economic shift, and we're in one right now, and especially in this digital revolution, communication skills become more valuable and not less. Yeah. I know you're not going to disagree with that, but <laughs> can, you, can you just amplify what Gallo was saying, that, that, that having the ability to communicate effectively and having real impact will actually protect your value to an organization? 
I, I, I couldn't agree with, with, with more with those ideas and thoughts. And I think you've got to step back a little bit and go, why is that true? And one reason is certainly what you've definitely alluded to. You know, if, you're, if there's a, a simple structure to what you're doing, AI will be doing that in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever that, that timeline is going to be. The thing is about what can you do differently, better, faster? and certainly communication and persuasion. We talked earlier about that idea of sensory acuity and picking up if somebody is buying into that idea, challenged by that idea, excited by that idea. Now it's very, very difficult for a lot of people to have that flexibility to be able to shift and change and do something different. So that idea around persuasion is definitely a, a key one and the interpersonal skills to be able to do that. In fact, another quote that I've heard from Carmine is communication and leadership skills are in high demand and low supply. And if something's in low supply, then obviously there's a premium. Uh, there's, a, there's a premium, there's a high demand and low supply. Everybody knows that. So that's what definitely one part of it. And I would agree. And I think why is there that skill, that skill shortage now? And I think that's because, you know, you and I here, we, we, we sit in our 50s, you know, in our, in our teens and our 20s, when we wanted to speak to our friends, we did it face-to-face -face or we did it over the phone. It was interactive. People coming into the workplace now have spent done a lot of that communication that we did face-to-face -face on the phone by SMS or WhatsApp, lacking that interactivity piece. Now, anybody who practices any skill will more than somebody else will be better at it. It's just simple neurology. Re repetition is the mother of skill. So people coming into the workplace now who haven't got that same practice, just that same exposure to this kind of stuff, like turn-taking in conversations for them. You know, you can, you can always tell when somebody wants to speak because they breathe in and hold their breath. You know, it's simple things like that. And if you now... If you haven't had that practice, you're not going to be as good as that as somebody else. So I think there's a second element. Yes, I would agree with Carmine. If AI can replicate it, it will. But I think also for people who are younger, maybe people listening to their podcast are thinking about their kids, you know, who are thinking about, you know, in four, five, ten years' time, they're going to be into the marketplace. What can we what can we help them with? And I think those core communication skills, certainly in leadership, if you want to inspire a team, you want to motivate a team, you want to energize a team, that's not something that AI can do. That's all human to human stuff. So the importance of those key communication skills is really, really important. When I go up to speak or I come off stage and someone says, oh, I could never do that. I kind of chuckle going, that's one less competition uh, uh, person competing <laughs> with me. Um, but my daughter, Madeline, she's 12 and, and I'm encouraging her to practice these skills at a young age and I did that yeah. I was debating when I was yeah. probably younger than her so I get used to being in front of a crowd I got used to being nervous and getting over it I had no idea that in 45 years time yeah. this would become a real transferable skill it'd be an economic skill part of how I earn my money and my trade is by, by public speaking um, but I didn't realize also that when in this, sh this shift now with technology and jobs are being lost that probably this is the number one skill that will ensure that you are relevant into the next um, transformation. Absolutely. And it is one of those things that you look at the statistics that come out every year about people's top phobias. Mm. What's right up there? Public speaking. Yeah. And again, that's fear of rejection, making yourself very vil uh, visible. Lots of people that I work with will orientate them back to what I call a, a, a primary psychological event. You know, at school for the first time they came up and got public. And funnily enough, if it was positive, they quite like public speaking. Yes, yes. And if it was negative, the brain goes, well, I stuck my head above the parapet once. I got it shot off 
I'm not going to do that again. So that's where I've got to do often a lot of work around, you know, building people's confidence and giving them the how-to so that they know how to, how to be able to do it. And that's really, really important. And it comes back to the old idea that if a lot of people find it difficult, then there's a niche, there's an opportunity there. And I don't think our, our psychology and our physiology is gonna change. I think that's gonna be similar. I think if we do that, those research in five years time, I think public speaking is always going to come up as something that people don't like doing. So I'm assuming the demographic of this podcast, we've probably got three different groups. We've got the young leaders who want to impress. We've got the middle managers just trying to break to that next point. And you've got the senior execs and the CEOs who are representing their companies. Yeah. What are some simple things that each group can, can do to overcome that fear and stand out and be a great communicator? Big part of it is psychology. And a big part of, I find, the emotional states that we get ourselves into and this is very powerful, but also very challenging, is that every emotional state that we ever get into, we did it. We did it to ourselves. Other people can't make you feel something. I think it was Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt famously said, nobody can make you feel bad about yourself. You know, that's, that's always a self-decision. So in terms of the nerves and feeling, uh, and feeling challenged by public speaking, one of the things that I always, I have what I call the three B's of boosting your, your confidence. And the first one is your brain, or what psychologists call your inner voice. Every single time I've worked with somebody who's got a heightened nervousness or a, not quite a phobia, but certainly quite fearful of the public speaking, when I see them get into that emotional state, I, st I, say, I say, stop. What are you saying about yourself to yourself inside your head right now? And 99.99 times out of 100, it's, oh, you're screwing this up again. I can't believe it. I hate this. I hate doing public speaking. This is terrible. You're watching me. I feel terrible. So how, what kind of emotion is that thought process going to create? It's only ever going to create nervousness, anxiousness. And I remember hearing this wonderful story from a voice coach years ago about John F. Kennedy. And he had an outward mantra, for want of a better phrase. And when he's going on stage and he'd feel incredibly nervous and looking out and I'm the president, I'm supposed to be this great speaker, blah, blah, blah. And he would stand in the wings and he would look out into the crowd and he would say, I'm delighted to be here with you. And I know that you're delighted to be here with me. I'm delighted to be here with you. And I know that you're delighted to be here with me. So that positive self-talk, self that mantra, then would get himself into that more confident psychological state to then be able to walk out as a president of the United States and narrate in such a wonderful way that he did. So that first be your brain, how you talk about yourself to yourself is a major indicator of the psychological state you're going to be in and how well you're going to perform. Almost out of time, uh, as I'm doing in every podcast to ensure this is all about practical things you can do, let's have some quick fire practical tips. Mm -hmm. So what are the three things listeners can do to be more effective next week? Fantastic. Great question. Three things people can do to be more effective next week. First of all is think about that sat-nav analogy. If you're going to communicate with somebody, where are they? Where do you want to get them to? And what is the most appropriate roadmap to be able to do that? In terms, start with your message and make sure that that's really clear. Most speakers I find talk with a, uh, an assumption of interest. They assume their audience is interested in their topic as they are, and they're just not. So the first thing then is about get that message right. The second key thing that they can do is prepare. 
rehearse more. The number of times I talk to people and I say, how many, and they, they go through their slide deck and I say, how many times have you stood up and said this out loud so far? And they look at me with a faced expression that can only indicate the number zero. So practice and rehearsal. So, so know your message, practice and rehearsal. And the third thing is look at people who are successful. And we talk about technology. Look at TED, the website TED.com, the best speakers in the world doing their thing, and start to be much more curious about how do the top speakers do this. You referenced Carmine Gallo's uh, books, which are all fantastic, talk like TED, five stars, et cetera, et cetera. They will give you tools and tips about how to be able to, to do it. So three things that people can do differently, get their message right, rehearse and plan and invest the time and thirdly pay attention to the fantastic resources that are right there in terms of books or ted in order to really challenge ourselves about how do we communicate rather than just thinking about content two more bonus quick fire questions you run a small business what's been the greatest threat technology has brought to your business well, this is interesting. In training and development, which are where I've come from, e-learning has been the greatest threat. And on a spreadsheet, it looks staggeringly compelling. You know, pay for 12 senior executives to come together, put them up in a hotel the night before, then pay consultants, be in the room with them. They're lost opportunity costs. They're not doing their job for those two days, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, let's stick this thing online called e-learning, and they can do it in their own time. No travel, no time. Don't have to pay a consultant. Small fee. Wonderful. And that has been a big threat to the learning and development industry. Now, unfortunately, everybody who has done it knows that, again, it's a shift of environment. It's very difficult to make that work. There's been lots of interesting research called that the biggest part of learning is actually something called social learning, paying attention to what other people do or don't do, doing the things that they do well, learning from their mistakes, talking about it. And that's where people really do learn. So that whole shift to e-learning has been a major threat to the business, which is why I've embraced the opportunities of it. So I work differently. So I do digital coaching. So when I'm working with senior executives, people like yourself, you know, their diaries are busy. Actually, the biggest challenge very often is actually getting two people available at the same time. So my digital coaching offering, which is either like with yourself, I can look at your talks, you publish them online, or if I'm working with somebody else, they can just send me through a file sharing app, you know, they can email me a very large file, which again, you couldn't do 20 years ago, and I can watch that video. So digital coaching is something I've now embraced where I can watch somebody's video clip then do a simple voice recording of my feedback and I can play their video. So at two minutes 32, you said this. However, what I would say would be this. So they can then watch their own video back with my voice commentary, looking at the difference of what they did versus what I'm suggesting and then take, take it to the next level. So digital coaching has been something that I'm doing much more of. It's, it's very cost effective because there's no... Uh, travel and involved for both parties and I can do my feedback when suits me and the, the clients can read that and listen to that feedback when suits them so it's much more flexible so a big threat has been e-learning but a big opportunity has been the technology has enabled digital coaching which allows me to work with people all over the world. Martin thank you so much for being with us today how can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? Well, two best places to find me are on LinkedIn. So if you type in my name, Martin Brooks, and the word impact, I should come up pretty close to the top. Or on Twitter, impactologist, the word impact, then tologist. So two T's in the middle, and I'm easily found on either LinkedIn or on Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Practical Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at futurist.london. 
And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops at futurist.london. Until next time, this has been the Practical Futurist Podcast.